Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Seaweed Brain. Today, we have a very special set of sections. We have a lot of relationship growth, teenage development. We're back with Annabeth and Percy for a very important section of these books. Stick around. It's going to be good. Okay, not only are we back in the Percy and Annabeth POV chapters, what we live for, why we're on this earth, (laughs) but our very favorite Ola is back with us. Hi, Ola. How's it going? Hey, y'all. Thanks for having me on the pod again. We're very excited. (laughs) What's up with you? I don't know. You're back in D.C. now, right? You've You've been traveling around. Yeah, I've been bit bopping around. Uh, just as a disclaimer, I got my Johnson & Johnson vaccine in very early March, so I've been fully vaccinated since I've left my humble abode. Just, I don't want to get canceled. So I've been very yes. safe. Um, <laughs> but I guess to update everyone, um, I went to California for Liv's graduation, um, and we got to see her sister and brother-in-law, and it was so nice, and we did so many queer, outdoorsy things. <laughs> and then we were in Traverse City, up north with Liv's parents, yes! also doing queer, outdoorsy things, Traverse but City. with her family this time. Jeez. And then we... Did you go to the lavender farm? No, we did not go to a lavender farm. I did not know there was a lavender farm, but I would definitely be telling you about that. It's small. Wait, that's no. so cutie. I love that. I want to, you know, give you space. You haven't been on for a while. You haven't gotten to share thoughts about the Mark of Athena as a book yet. Are there moments in this book you'd like to review or just say anything about this book in general? Yeah, it's Mark of Athena is just me falling in love with Annabeth a little bit more. Um, I stand Annabeth, obviously, just she's a light of my life. And I really loved mm-hmm. talking about how the book kind of treats Athena as a villain almost. Mm. I just feel like when you look back at a lot of the ways Athena mythology is like talked about, it's very much like she's vengeful, she's angry, she's petty. Mm. I love hearing like feminist retellings of Athena because I find it interesting the ways in which new Athena scholars like get a very much woman's empowerment, woman's protection lens from some of her pettier moments throughout mythology. So I love this book because I love Athena and I love Annabeth. Yes. You're in the right place. <laughs> I consider our podcast a safe haven for Annabeth stands within this fandom. I think that all the Annabeth stands left um, are listening to us. So. <laughs> and just, you know, a heads up that because this is a Percy and Annabeth POV episode, we're going to be reading basically 300 pages yeah. out loud. So Love that. ready for that. For that. Um, and I think on that note, we can go ahead and get started. All right. Where did we leave off? Last time, I believe we were on um, an island in the Strait of Gibraltar with Hercules getting destroyed by a cornucopia. And Percy is narrating again. And Percy is, <laughs> how do we put this? He's um, feeling inadequate. He's going through it. He's wondering, am I still the protagonist? When is it my turn? When are we going to hear about good old Percy Jackson again? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, on one hand, it's a little bit like, okay, calm down, Percy. But on the other yes. hand, it's like, me too. Like, is, like I want, when am I going to hear like, from Percy like, don't be a toxic again? man, but also at the same time, like, yeah, I am. I, let, let's get back to it, please. So... <laughs> There's this quote, Hercules, the most famous demigod of all time, and Percy didn't get to meet him either. Okay, sure. From what Piper said afterward, Hercules was a jerk, but still, Percy was getting kind of tired of staying aboard the ship and pacing the deck. This is this was upsetting to me. I don't know if you picked this out too. I think we talked about this before. Book three, the whole arc of this, Titan's Curse, is Percy learning about masculinities. It's Percy going through this 
and talking to Zoe Nightshade and being like, you know what? Yes, this time effectively being adopted by a feminist commune for a short period is going to teach me about what icons <laughs> of, of boyhood and manhood are appropriate for me to have, one of whom is explicitly not Hercules. Hercules is the important, like, worst-case scenario, bad example in that book. And yeah, we're back. It seems as though Percy, it, he's described as almost not remembering it in these books, and I find that very um, sad and scary. Any, any, anyone else? No? Just me? I When I think about everybody else that exists in this book arc, no. <laughs> in earlier books, like especially like one through five, I'm like, oh my god, Percy's just been through it. Like Percy, sweet angel. And then sometimes I'm like, Hazel's life was really bad. Yes. <laughs> I can't take Percy's like sadness seriously. I'm like, he does often risk his life and he also has trauma. But Hazel and Leo's backstories make me really sad. And I don't feel that bad when Jason and Percy are having their mini little moments. That's fair. But I could be toxic, so... <laughs> oh, actually, I take that back. I am toxic, so... To clarify, this was not me feeling bad for Percy. This is me feeling bad for myself. As <laughs> someone who wants, you know, a delicate, educated, flowery yeah. man to be at the center of the story... And just wondering if we're still getting that. Okay, but that's why we're going to talk about Song of Achilles. That's why we're talking about Song of Achilles later for a delicate, flowery little man at the center of a story. I am so excited for that. He is such a beautiful, sweet angel. We're going to be talking about that on a later special episode. I guess that's our announcement about that. But as somebody myself who strives for main character energy, I'll say it out loud. I'm a Gemini and I try to be the protagonist in all situations. I feel for Percy, you know? He just saved the world and he's a little shook by like what? seeing sidelines yeah. now we're gonna do a dramatic reading of this and i'm gonna be percy and carter's gonna I be annabeth this. are you ready <laughs> so page 351 percy in his narration says to make matters worse annabeth had been distant ever since they had left charleston she had spent most of her time in her cabin studying the bronze map she'd retrieved from fort sumter or looking up information on dadalus's laptop whenever percy stopped by to see her she was so lost in thought that the conversation went something like this hey how's it going uh, no thanks. Okay, have you eaten anything today? I think Leo's on duty. Ask him. So my hair is on fire. Okay, in a while. She got like this sometimes. <laughs> it was one of the challenges of dating an Athena girl. Still, Percy wondered what he had to do to get her attention. He was worried about her after her encounter with the spiders at Fort Sumter, and he didn't know how to help her, especially if she shut him out. <laughs> I was going to say, let's talk about that, but it's pretty similar to what we've been witnessing so far especially like we said back at fort sumter with annabeth mm -hmm. thinking through how she does shut percy out um, <laughs> but how at this in this moment like literally in these eight chapters she has to it's the only way mm -hmm. and percy wanting to be the main character and also wanting to be a supportive partner his fatal flaw being protecting his friends is really confused about how he's supposed to let annabeth go off on her own yeah yeah i think that's true i think there's also a way in which like annabeth is both growing in this See, like, I think this is how she initially thinks that she needs to show her independence and to, uh, you know, prepare herself yeah. for this. She's very much anxious, avoidant. <laughs> no, literally, I want to go through this so much. She has an anxious, avoidant attachment style. And she just does not have, she just needs, okay. She's just the person that needs to think things through and process it internally before communicating. This girl has trauma and she's working through it. If we got her some DBT for her to access her feelings and talk about them, like Miss Annabeth is very much a, mm, 
I am feeling this because X, Y, and Z, and now that I know why I'm feeling it, it doesn't exist anymore. Like, baby girl needs to learn how to feel and communicate. But also, she just got traumatized by her world's greatest fear. Like, baby's not ready for it. Person needs to give her some space. <laughs> Let Miss Mama heal. Well, do you want to remind our listeners uh, of what DBT is? Oh my God. Let's see if I know DBT <laughs> I is. I think we all benefit from her pressure. <laughs> <laughs> it's diagnostic behavioral therapy, right? Shall we look this up? Dialectical. Okay, dialectical. And the great tradition. Of the Hegelian of dialectic. The she needs help. <laughs> no, she needs help. <laughs> okay. Where are we? I think we are flying through the air. Jason's kind of taking point in defending the ship because it really is just Jason and Percy alternating based on the terrain. They either are flying in the sky or they're in the ocean. And depending on where they are, it's just Percy and Jason like taking care of everything. And Hazel, Leo, Frank, Piper. Or, I don't know. I guess Leo's steering the ship. I feel a little weird about it. But like, uh, it is true. No, I guess. That's that's how it is. We know Rick was just really letting Jason do whatever the hell he wanted. <laughs> he was the protagonist. Oh, Rick. It's like Jason is the protagonist, and it's been stated that he's the leader, and we know that. But because the book... Because we're getting, like, seven different perspectives on this story, it's like we're not witnessing the actual quest itself. Like, if we were watching it from the outside without any of their perspectives, it'd be like, oh, yes, Jason's in charge, and here's the arc, and we wouldn't hear about Annabeth going off and that whole thing, because we need to be in her perspective to know about it, and we wouldn't know about Percy's, like, imposter syndrome and all that stuff. But because we're, like getting everyone else's individual POVs. It's like we're watching it from another angle. And it's easy to forget that Jason actually is like the named protagonist of this quest. And he is technically in charge because that's like not the lens that we're looking at it through. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I think it goes back to what we constantly say about him being like milquetoast and average. His personality is being leader. So his POVs have nothing to flush them out because... He is literally an empty shell in this very specific role. This is a little off, like off topic, but have you guys seen Tenet? <laughs> yes, I have seen Tenet. Did you know that Tenet is Tenet backwards? <laughs> As the <laughs> one wouldn't stop telling me after we watched the movie. <laughs> oh my god, I had no idea it was a palindrome. I had a long conversation about Tenet, after which I decided not to. Oh, say Tenet. I, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I watched it for the second time, and I like as I was watching this, I was like, oh my god, like the protagonist concept theme or whatever in Tenet, where it's like you're not the protagonist, you are a protagonist, and that's kind of like a back and forth with the main character who's only named as the protagonist. You get no backstory, you get no motivations, all you know is that he's in charge. And I think that lends itself well to the fact that the story's the story, like, you could sub in someone else for it. But, like, because Jason's so fucking boring, literally anyone else could be leading the quest during their POV. Like, I don't know, I have a lot of thoughts about how boring he is. Yeah. And how boring the main character in Tenet is and how he deserves better. John David Washington should have more of a personality because mm. he would have killed that if we got a little yeah. bit of motivations from him. But Jason has no motivations <laughs> other than being the leader. Like, he has no intrinsic motivation to, like, do anything. Yeah, I think that's right. You're the only person who I will willingly listen to discuss the film Tenet, Ola. <laughs> <laughs> Not even willingly, but gratefully. (laughs) I have like shitty white boy taste in movies. It's actually toxic. Because we do improv, it's not our fault. 
conditioned into this. You do what you have to to survive. Have you heard about Quentin Tarantino? Fun fact, <laughs> Kill Bill Volume 2 is my favorite movie. Uma Thurman is my queen. Because Jason is doing the whole fighting off the monsters thing, Percy goes to get some sleep, which means some anxious demigod dreams. We dream about the giants, Ephialtes and Otis talking to um, somebody who isn't Gaia this time, but they call your ladyship. And we don't know who this entity is, but it's clear that together the three of them are trying to resurrect their kingdom like we know in the ancient lands and that together they're trying to stop Annabeth from following the Mark of Athena and that they need to get specifically Percy and Annabeth who they need to capture alive in order to sacrifice to like raise their new kingdom. The stakes have just been raised. Yes. Uh Uh-oh. This is also the first time we're meeting this antagonist who as you know is like connected in with our other class. This is how we find out that everything is linked in this book for the first time on page what like 300 yeah. 356. I think the writing of this person, it's not a spoiler. We are, we're going to find out who it is. You should have read this already. This person is Arachne. This is the first time we're getting her. She's not named, but she's exclusively described um, basically through the um, impact she has on the environment and through her voice. I feel like this is very effective. Even though, like, if you know anything about Greek mythology, you probably would have guessed at this point. There are very strong context clues that it's Arachne. It's also on the cover. It's on the new cover. That's true. On the old cover, it's um, Jason and Percy trying to kill each other. <laughs> but um, yeah, we were talking about this before we started recording. That all of us are just such big fans of this book for its lows and its messy parts. Like it's so cool that only on page three fifty six do we finally understand how all the threads of each individual quest and mission and villain are all coming mm-hmm. together. And it's so exciting and impressive, and I just love it. So the giants are talking. It says others could be used for that purpose, as opposed to Percy and Annabeth. Yes, Ephialtes said. But this girl is preferred, and the boy, the son of Poseidon, you can see why those two would be most suited for the task. Percy wasn't sure what that meant, but he wanted to crack the floor and send these stupid gold-shirted twins down to oblivion. He'd ne'er let Gaia spill his blood for any... Why did I write Nair? That's definitely supposed to say never. Wow. <laughs> Percy is not Shakespeare, classical training. Nair let Gaia spill his blood for any task, and there was no way he'd let anyone hurt Annabeth. I just had to read that because, you know, Percy Beth podcast. <laughs> Great. After that, Percy wakes up, decides to go wake up Annabeth, um, and once again, they are breaking curfew to discuss the stream, but this time they decide to go do it on the deck of the ship where Leo also is, so it's not chaotic. Basically, Percy tells Annabeth about his dream. Annabeth isn't surprised and is kind of like shockingly emotionless, which is scaring Percy a little bit. Yeah, okay, this is page 357. She peered into the fog. Percy, you have to promise me something. Don't tell the others about this dream. Don't, what? Annabeth, what you saw was about the Mark of Athena, she said. I won't help others to know. It'll only make them worry, and it'll make it harder for me to go off on my own. Annabeth, you can't be serious. That thing in the dark, the big chamber with the crumbling floor. I know, her face looked unnaturally pale, and Percy suspected it wasn't just the fog. But I have to do this alone. Percy swallowed back his anger. He wasn't sure if he was mad at Annabeth, or his dream, or the entire Greek-Roman world that had endured and shaped human history for 5,000 years with one goal in mind, to make Percy Jackson's life suck as much as possible. <laughs> you know what's in the cavern, he guessed. Does it have to do with spiders? Yes, she said in a small voice. Then how can you even... He made himself stop. Once Annabeth had made up her mind, arguing with her wouldn't do any good. He remembered the night three and a half years ago when they'd saved Nico and Bianca Diaz on May. Annabeth had been captured by the Titan Atlas. For a while, Percy wasn't sure if he was alive or dead. He traveled across the country to save her from the Titan. It had been the hardest few days of his life. Not the monsters and the fighting, but the worry. How could he intentionally let her go now, knowing... She was heading into something even more dangerous. Then it dawned on him. The way it had felt back then for a few days was probably how Annabeth had felt for the six months he had been missing. Amnesia. 
that made him feel guilty and a bit selfish to be standing here and arguing with her. She had to go on this quest. The fate of the world might depend on it. But part of him wanted to say, forget the world. He didn't want to be without her. Oh, no. it makes me feel emotions. <laughs> My heart goes pitter-patter. <laughs> it's just, we're really setting up like this whole, like the two of them against the world because it's about to happen. And it's like, ah, don't wish too hard because you're about to get it, boy. It's going to be the two of you versus everyone else. Ah! <laughs> After that, bam, attack from what seems like a pirate ship full of dolphin men. Annabeth and Percy stand back to back as they've done many times before, their weapons drawn, and they have to fight this incoming army of scary dolphin people um the dolphin people are very scary they have vicious teeth which i appreciated because i think that we're you know we're always challenging the master narrative that dolphins aren't the most vicious animal in the sea (laughs) which they are and we have to remember how violent and invasive dolphins really are don't they attack like orcas or sharks don't they also try to drown sharks yeah they just like hurt people for fun they assault seals because they're bored yeah they're so violent i love that good for them dolphins do famously have sex for pleasure i believe yes they do but dolphins not one of the like sex for pleasure but also like power not a perpetuated stereotype but i believe dolphins are also bisexual good for them Good for them. We support it. I'm gonna get canceled. Take dolphins to pride. Take dolphins to pride. <laughs> no, I'm keeping it in. No, I'm keeping it in. The people need to know that Carter is biphobic. Okay, you're gonna get me destroyed. Oh my god. We love bisexuals here. <laughs> dolphins are bisexual. <laughs> Take dolphins to pride. Anyway, we can zoom through this. Yes. We're in an encounter with the pirates. The important thing for us to remember here, basically, is that the leader of the pirates, Pricer, who is the son of Poseidon and Medusa, another half-sibling, because we love Percy having this reiterated half-sibling conflict every time we get a new monster and or just vaguely murderous human. The, the important thing about this is that Chrysler is, like, better than Percy in um, key respects. Like, Percy tries to fight him multiple times and just fails. Fails badly. Does not have the technical skill necessary to dispatch this person. I love that. This is such an instrumental moment. I love weakness. (laughs) The delicate balance between needing your protagonist to be incredibly competent, but also like physically vulnerable, you know, this is, this is really threading that needle so excellently. Percy's having some huge L's today. Like Riptide just gets thrown into the sea and he's like, oh my God, I forgot. I'm like bad at sword fighting now. (laughs) Practice since Luke Castellan. Oh my God. Yeah. And Chrysler does his sort of like evil villain speech. This was honestly hilarious. The evil villain speech. (laughs) Yeah. If only people who remembered me, I would have been a hero. But since they dared to forget me, I guess I better um, murder people. Be a villain. But because we've never heard of him, we're stuck because we can't pull on our myth knowledge to take care of this guy. But what we do remember is how the dolphin creatures came to be. Percy has a smart, quick-witted moment where he remembers that they were changed into dolphins by none other than Mr. D, Dionysus. And so Percy tries to be all cunning and is like, (laughs) uh, scare them with the name of Mr. D. It works. He shows them a bottle of Coca-Cola and they cower. Hilarious. (laughs) And Chrysler retreats when his army like jumps into the sea and they decide to sacrifice the pirate ship to Dionysus slash Bacchus. Percy feels humble. This was a little weird for me because I feel like Percy and Dionysus ended on a really good note at the end of Last Olympian with the whole like, please save my son thing. Yeah. Mr. D being really important in the war being won. 
Yeah. But Percy is like, oh, I hate calling on Mr. D. I feel so humble. I'm such a humble boy right now. Oh, yes. woe is me. They make it very textual at this point, which is um, interesting. <laughs> they really hit it over the head where he, like, I believe says the word humble maybe five times in a paragraph as they're, like, sailing away. Yeah. I really like this quote. Page 377. Ola, do you want to read this? Got it. The older he got, the longer he survived as a half-blood. The more his fiends looked up to him. Friends looked up to him. <laughs> but Percy did... <laughs> <laughs> friends look up to him but Percy didn't feel oh, powerful <laughs> the more heroic stuff he did the more he realized how limited he was he felt like a fraud maybe that's why he had started to fear suffocation it wasn't so much drowning in the earth or the sea but the feeling that he was sinking into too many expectations literally getting in over his head oof Baby. Oh, it's brutal out here. Woo-wee. They told you save the world for the third time over. You said, I don't think I can. God. <laughs> I am drowning under the expectations of being the hero that I might not be anymore. I just love this, like, late teenage imposter. No. Yeah. Like, I'm exhausted. Everyone expects this of me. When do I get a break? In the event that anyone is tuning in from the future, um, we're recording this the Sunday after um, Sour Drought. <laughs> yeah, I was going to mention it, but we've already barfed about it too much on social media. We've um, barfed about it too much on social media. Side note, people have been sending me edits, the like brutal edits on like TikTok uh, to like Harry Potter and like Peter Parker. And no one has sent me a Percy Jackson one yet. And I really, really need one. Yeah. Please just like yeah. make one. Thank you. And send it to us immediately. I'll Venmo you $2 <laughs> if you can do that for me. <laughs> we're just, we're just going to read more Percy's and Roses, I guess. This, I think, is the other component of, like, late teenage angst, where it's not just him being, like, there are lots of expectations, but there's also this sort of two-way journey that we've sort of experienced with him before. I feel like this is, what is the phrase? The other shoe dropping on um, the earlier lessons we got about yielding because of Annabeth. But there's a long passage here in which he is, again, describing how difficult it is for him to yield and to think about the ways in which he is interdependent with others, particularly his mom and Grover who, of course, in the earlier books were both um, kidnapped for extended periods of time and held hostage so the person would come find him. Yep. He falls asleep wondering about his fatal flaw and thinking to himself, like, I would sacrifice anything for my friends. I know that. But what if it came down to the good of the quest, a.k.a. saving the fate of the universe or saving Annabeth? Like, would I be able to let Annabeth go, essentially, mm-hmm. in order to save the rest of humanity? And he's like, mm, IDK. Like, he really does not know, and he falls asleep thinking about that, has a scary dream about Gaia, and then then we wake up in Rome. Rome, the one city in all of Europe that I would even remotely want to see. But Rick gives a really beautiful description of Rome, as he often does, but it's very, it's very specific about the sprawl and about the, um, like, layered quality to it. It's really romantic. I think he does a good job of, like, putting the characters in the space and being, like, yeah, you guys have been saving the Western world for a while, but this is kind of what I mean when I mean Western ideals is really just the start of Western civilization. And I really, really love that. Yes. Romantic really is the right word. This is like, the only city that I think he writes even close to this beautifully is just, is New York, which he also writes about so, so lovingly. Um, in DC, in the House of, which one? The House of Anubis? That's true. There is some nice DC writing. 
the way he writes the obelisk, that scene was so heartwarming to me as someone from like the DMV area. I was like, wow, that is really what it feels like when you're a little kid, like going on your first DC trip. I think that that's one of Rick's like most amazing talents as a writer is like being able to describe like the cities and, and write them so lovingly, like personify them. And I like how much time he spends really saying like, We've been in America, but now we're here. We're in the ancient lands. This is a level up. It's more dangerous. It's more like powerful for them. Mm-hmm. And he takes a lot of time, Percy, thinking about this. And the other demigods are all just like equally awe-inspired. It's their study abroad. They're older now and they're ready to take on like new challenges. And I just thought that was so cute. I love that. So they get there and then it's basically right away. It's time for Annabeth to go to find the river to Burnus and give her letter of rec to start her mission. But Percy won't even let her walk to the river alone. Um, so he's clearly not doing so well yet on his whole like, do I save Annabeth trolley problem thing. Um, page 383, Percy. Percy's POV says, when he and Annabeth started dating, his mother had drilled it into his head. It's good manners to walk your date to the door. If that was true, it had to be good manners to walk her to the start of her epic solo death quest. Oh, so cute. Very good. Classic Rick writing. He's so good. Okay, so that takes us to their little lunch date on the River Tiber. This is top, top tier. This is a top tier Percybeth moment. In this book, this is... I think the best one and the most visually iconic one, the empty cafe along the Tiber. Because they're eating perfect. at a time when like no Italians eat lunch because um, they're dumb Americans. Yes, because they're too early because they're Americans. But, uh, it's such a loving detail. Knowing this is like their last moment of peace for like yeah. maybe like two more books um, is yeah. really special. Percy orders pizza and like Coke with ice and he's confused why the waiter is so annoyed and he's like, well, I didn't order a blue Coke. And Annabeth orders a panini and fizzy water. And I was just like, yes, she does. Obviously. Classy queen. She knows the room, knows the culture, knows about local culture. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, with no ice. They're sitting there. Percy's looking at her. He's describing her. He's walking through his neuroses some more. But there is another passage that we should read. I think it's dialogue between the two of them at this this final lunch date along the Tiber. I believe it's 390. I'm going to start from, um, it doesn't matter when you fall, Guy had said, which, of course, foreshadowing. <laughs> Percy knew it was a horrible wish, but he almost regretted that they had been captured at sea. At least Annabeth and he would have been together. You shouldn't feel the same, Annabeth said. You're thinking about Cryosaur, aren't you? Swords can't solve every problem. He's saying this in the end. In spite of himself, Percy smiled. How do you do that? You always know what I'm thinking. I know you, she said. You like me anyway? Percy wanted to ask, but he held it back. Percy, she said, you can't carry the weight of this whole quest. It's impossible. That's why they start with us. And you'll have to let me search for the Akuma Parkinos on my own. I missed you, he confessed. For months, a huge chunk of our lives was taken away. If I lost you again, lunch arrived. The way looked much more. Having accepted the fact that they were clueless Americans, he apparently decided to forgive them and treat them politely. It is a beautiful view, he said. That would river. Enjoy it, please. Once he left, they ate in silence. The pizza was a bland, doughy square without a lot of cheese. Maybe Percy thought that's why Romans didn't leave it. Poor Romans. You have to trust me, Abbott said. Percy almost thought she was talking to a sandwich, but she didn't need advice. You've got to believe I'll come back alive. He swallowed another bite. I believe in you. That's not the problem. But come back from where? We're kind of retreading a lot of the same territory in a lot of these dialogues, but... I'm grateful. But it's important. Write me the same scene eight times if Percy and Annabeth are in it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. It's it's short of life that they are not, that he's struggling. He should be struggling. Mm -hmm. And struggling, honestly, is this irritating form of repetition, I think, that we get here. They're butting heads over and over again because that's who they are. (laughs) 
Yes, and they're interrupted by none other than Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn, which is the current uh, visual version, I guess, of the River Tiber, and Rhea Silvia, who is the mother of Romulus and Ramus. I didn't know that. The founders of Rome. Yeah. And Annabeth and Percy are like, wait, I'm sorry, why do you look like this? I think this is just like an America thing. Um and Audrey Hepburn is like, well, the flame of Western civilization goes both ways, you know. And is that supposed to be made Atlantic accent? <laughs> I, I, I don't know what Audrey Hepburn sounds like, okay? I wasn't that girl. Um, wow, I feel added. That was rude. <laughs> hey, come on now. <laughs> as much as Rome affects America, America also affects Rome. And the city has been, you know, trampled by tourists, as we know. Um, and so we look like the people from this movie. Poor explanation. <laughs> I don't know. It's cute. It's an iconic image. Annabeth hops onto their little blue moped and they're ready to take her off. Percy doesn't know what to say. He basically just says, please be safe. Annabeth kisses him. Percy hates being separated. He would rather do anything than be separated from her again, but he forces himself to stay there and let her go off on her own. Beautiful. 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 Important. Absolutely. Legendary and groundbreaking. Never been done before. Never been done before. Um, Iconic. And it's... Never been the same. Sorry. <laughs> and then it's time to switch into Annabeth's POV for her epic solo death quest. So we'll take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're back. So we are in Annabeth's perspective now. We are zooming off on this moped with Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn. This is the first real thing of note that she mentions is that um, she knows this movie and she's able to explain this reference to Percy and to us, the reader, because her dad is really into the Roman holiday. <laughs> and she Ooh. theorizes that it's because it reminds him of his relationship with Athena. Oh, <laughs> that's cute. I don't know if I find this cute. I find this a lot. Um, like, she's probably <laughs> right, but... <laughs> I think it's so sad for Mr. Chase, who probably was, like, so obsessed with Athena and thought she was amazing, because she and is. she knew she'd never see her Yeah. <laughs> that man is suffering every time this movie goes on. Athena is the manic pixie dream girl. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. That's his Alaska. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's a reference. Shout out our other fellow old people. Um, they they have like a really weird conversation. I don't know how to describe this, but they're like describing old Rome. They're talking about the languidness of time. I, I don't know. The mood is very bizarre in this conversation that she has with the two of them before she gets dropped off at the place where she has to go underground and start the final leg of her quest by herself. I, I, I remember strongly this this vibe, this kind of bizarre languidness, the days, the sense of Annabeth being really out of it as they describe the like scope of Rome and perhaps the hopelessness but also the importance of the quest I don't know 
This doesn't send out to anyone else. I think about this a lot. Oh. <laughs> but we're, we're, we're off. They, they drop her off in like some abandoned looking building. She goes underground. We begin the epic solo death quest. She thinks about how she hasn't been this alone since before Talia and Luke That's found so her sad. as a kid. And as she's going through, she, you know, encounters all these little like physical barriers and all of these things. She just thinks about how anyone else would have been so helpful. Frustration crawled through her like an army of termites. She spent her life watching other demigods gain amazing powers. Percy could control water. If he were here, he could raise the water level and simply float down. Hazel, from what she had said, could find her way underground with flawless accuracy and even create or change the course of tunnels. She could easily make a new path. Leo would pull just the right tools from his belt and build something to do the job. Frank could turn into a bird. <laughs> Jason could simply control the wind and float down. Even Piper with her charm speak. She could have convinced Tiberinus and Rhea Silva to be a little more helpful. What did Annabeth have? <laughs> a bronze dagger that did nothing special and a cursed silver coin. She had her backpack with Daedalus's laptop, a water bottle, a few pieces of ambrosia for emergencies, and a box of matches. Probably useless, but her dad had drilled into her head that she should always have a way to make fire. She had no amazing powers. Even her one true magic item, her New York Yankees cap with invisibility had stopped working was still back in her cabin on the Argo, too. You've got your intelligence, a voice said. Annabeth wondered if Athena was speaking to her, but that was probably just wishful thinking. Intelligence, like Athena's favorite hero, Odysseus. He'd won the Trojan War with cleverness, not stretch. Strength. <laughs> he had overcome all sorts of monsters and hardships with his quick wits. That's what Athena valued. Wisdom's daughter walks alone. That didn't mean just without other people, Annabeth realized. It meant without any special powers. Baby girl. <laughs> this is peak imposter syndrome. Everybody else really is cool, is. and I just have to work hard. Damn. She needs the way she goes through person by person is really impactful. To me. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Even Piper. Even Piper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's Rich. reaching on that one. We all know it. We all know it. But it's important it's okay. for her own neuroses. <laughs> yes. I, I thought a lot about comparisons to perhaps Hunger Games in this section just because this is very different from most of the rest of Rick's writing because she's by herself. There's no dialogue mm-hmm. to write. She's just thinking. She's having her neurosis. She's just yeah. coming up with plans. I'm very struck by by how well this is written, given that Rick doesn't... This is basically the only time he ever does this kind of writing, where it's just in someone's head, by themselves, off on their own. And yet, it still feels it still feels unique to me. I, I was I was very impressed by this uniqueness. And the, the, like the voice of the neurosis feels right and feels fresh. It's, it's, Annabeth's voice is always so developed. Like It's amazing how yeah. we didn't get it until now, but it's clear that Rick has known it all along. Mm-hmm. And it's so beautiful. It must have been really fun for him to write this because, like, he knows what Annabeth's thinking constantly as he writes what Percy sees. But to, like, it's almost, like, taken up a level in comparison to what we see with Percy. It's Mm -hmm. like he truly captures what it's like to be a teenage girl and what it means to be a teenage boy. And this is so much more feminine-coded imposter syndrome where it's not like, oh, can I be good enough again? It's, oh, I was never good enough. I have to work so much harder than everyone else to be good enough. And I'm not because I have nothing. I'm not physically strong enough to do this. Like very realistically, like Mm -hmm. I do not have the strength that it would take Mm -hmm. to overcome this physical obstacle. 
I simply don't. Maybe Percy and Jason would, maybe Frank would, but I literally don't have that. So what do I have? It's literally just that's just my wit. That's it. I have to think back to my education and everything I was taught and try and come up with a solution. That is like, like I totally agree. I think it's very specifically like them coded. Mm. And I really appreciate this like idea of Annabeth seeing herself as somebody who's like unspecial and she becomes our like unspecial mm-hmm. protagonist. That's something like Carter and I are super passionate about are like people without powers <laughs> yes. being the main character. And not that Annabeth doesn't have powers, but she sees herself as not having any really. She's not the hero. She's not super special, but she has been chosen to do this quest. And so she's just going to do her damn best. Yeah. And then she does. She she goes about, makes a ladder out of some trash, thinks about whether maybe this labyrinth is actually the original one. Like this could be the original labyrinth Dallas built. And she thinks that Chiron would say that because the labyrinth is an archetypal force, it, it can never really die, which is obviously, you know, very metaphorical, but literally the premise of this entire series. So I like that she's really thinking <laughs> that through right now. Um, Lest we forget that archetypal forces never die and represent symbolic meaning for generations. (laughs) She encounters some misogynistic Roman ghosts. This is an interesting little mini quest. I I really enjoyed this. Yeah, she basically runs upon a, I don't know how to call it, like basically a men's rights cult. um, (laughs) In uh, the (laughs) Meninists. Yeah, a bunch of Meninists who believe that they are not only better than women, but also have all of these deep secrets. And she defeats him by just immediately understanding what the secrets are by looking around, which I, don't know, I, I read the scene and it was mostly like, why, like, why did every other child with female fail at this? They're, that's kind of black. <laughs> but, um, she, <laughs> she, she figures it out. She, in the way of famed 21st century sociologist Rachel Bloom, finds a third way that is not choosing any of the two options that the men have presented to her. She, she not only insults them and says that she is the leader of a famed women-only commune, but also um, <laughs> literally destroys this cavern and all of the men with it um, because she knows her mm-hmm. shit. It's a yeah. cute scene. <laughs> very, yeah, very like elementary catharsis, yeah. I feel. <laughs> yeah, totally. As the cave is falling and she jumps right on through, oops, she breaks her ankle. Um, <laughs> yes. I Turns out this. as she jumped through the cave, she was jumping 10 feet, falls, crashes, and please, please go on. It's so good. <laughs> Part of her wanted to howl at the world for being so unfair. All this way just to be stopped by something as common as a broken ankle. She forced her emotions back down. Oh, she really does that. At camp, she'd been trained to survive all sorts of bad situations, including injuries like this. And so she falls back on her education and she thinks through what she knows, how to protect herself, goes through very methodically how she's going to eat the ambrosia, rat bandage her ankle very specifically. This whole thing yes. is so... What do you write, Carter? Algorithmic? Yes. I really appreciate this. I think that this is such a beautiful way of um, deconstructing the idea of genius because Annabeth is supposed to be our genius. And yet her, like, the thing that she goes back to is um, like like, like a first aid, what do you call them? Like an algorithm, exactly. Like a set of numbered instructions that you follow in order. They're very basic, just about checking your surroundings, um, making the split based on certain tests of whether or not you've broken something. Yeah. I don't know. They, they, there's such a simplicity and elegance to the way that she like doesn't think of something that you would not be able to think of in the situation. You know how in Percy's POV, <laughs> especially always in the first series, he's always like, and then my body took over and I don't know what happened, but I had won the battle. Yeah. And Annabeth, that's like not it for her. It's not like all of a sudden yes. she knows exactly what to do and 
it just comes out of her because making a machine and bandaging her ankle is like in her blood. All she does is like remember something that she learned. It's not like she was born with yes. inherent genius. She's just like good at learning. That's beautiful. There's also something so powerful about the way it's like not iconoclastic either. Like everything that she does in these set of chapters is just drawing on, like you said, like previous knowledge of the specific, like she's adapting it, but she's not trying to like revolutionize everything. Like nothing she does is like some brilliant deviation from the past. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. She's very much like us. She's like a stand in for us right now because we're like, how would we fare, you know, as normal people in a in a quest like this? And she thinks to herself, Annabeth wanted to sob. She wanted someone, anyone to be here for her. She wanted Leo with his fire skills or Jason with his lightning or Hazel to collapse the tunnel. Most of all, she wanted Percy. She always felt braver when Percy was with her. I'm not going to die here. She told herself, I'm going to see Percy again. <laughs> Excuse me while I ugly cry. That's so beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) She weaves something, she passes a test, faces the spiders, and then the Athena Parthenos basically appears before her. She takes a moment to revel in it and be like kind of proud of herself for being the only demigod child of Athena to have witnessed this in a millennia. But she remembers this is only half the mission. Now she has to figure out how to carry this giant ass thing out of the underground. Again, how does I don't understand? (laughs) She scanned the chamber, hoping to see something that might help. Her eyes wandered over the tapestries, which were heart-wrenchingly beautiful. One showed a pastoral scene so three-dimensional it could have been a window. Another tapestry showed the gods battling the giants. Annabeth saw a landscape of the underworld. Next to it was the skyline of modern realm. And in the tapestry to her left, she caught her breath. It was a portrait of two demigods kissing underwater, Annabeth and Percy, the day their friends had thrown them into the canoe lake at camp. It was so lifelike that she wondered if the weaver had been there, lurking in the lake with a waterproof camera. How was that possible, she murmured. Above her, in the gloom, a voice spoke. For ages, I had known that you would come, my sweet. <laughs> oh my god. That's how you write a villain's entrance. I was going like. to say, hot take, this is my favorite villain entrance in the entire yes, series. To look at yourself. Oh my god. Arachne's a queen and she knows that. She said, baby girl, I've been waiting for you at the door. It's on site when you come to visit. I am on you. <laughs> incredible energy yeah. also how spooked like the idea i feel like that playing with that feeling of like being watched she has known about them for this mm. whole time like probably longer than they've been alive that's so spooky it really adds to the stakes like of course they've been prophesized but we've never before really gotten this kind of like specific visual imagery of her underwater with a waterproof yeah. camera like so specific Side note, if anyone wants to weave um, a tapestry like this, um, if anyone has loom skills, I know somebody must. Please. Um, Not the loom DM skills. DM me. No, I want to I commission this art straight up. Support small businesses, Erica, you clean. <laughs> and then we get a delightful second confrontation. Ar- Arachne comes out and gives her, gives her speech. She introduces herself, <laughs> gives the backstory, talks through this original myth of Arachne, which there are different versions of. Right, um, that manifests in the different understandings that Annabeth and Arachne respectively have of what happened. Um, some versions of this myth argue that Arachne did in fact beat Athena, but um, in her rage, Athena, um, you know, like turns her into a spider to punish her for daring to be better than a god. There are other versions in which Arachne is a sore loser, and Athena meets this out as a punishment to um, remind people of their humility because they are lower than the gods, right? It's left unclear which version is actually correct. Arachne is saying, of course, yeah. that it's, <laughs> it is the, the, the first version. She did defeat Athena. And we're given good reason to believe that either could be true because, of course, she's very talented. And maybe Annabeth has to reevaluate what this means about, of course, her relationship to her mother, which is at its lowest point 
yet know that Athena has pride, um, as, as she's uh, told in these books. She has a lot of pride, and she is kind of all over the place right now. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. But she has to let it go and fight for the death. <laughs> and that's our cliffhanger ending for today. Yay! <laughs> wow, Yay. those eight chapters give me a will to live. I really do not hesitate to say that. <laughs> Incredible content all around. The person of development in this is so instrumental. God this, dear. I think, often gets left out. We have a lot of conversations about the underwater kiss. We have a lot of conversations about the Tartarus. But this this is the linchpin. This is the linchpin. When they have the date, and, and she... And he lets her go. away with the two yeah, gods. Absolutely. Yeah. I see a lot of, like, Persephone slander online that focuses on how, like, their relationship doesn't exist, really, in the original series. And, like, therefore, Persephone is, like, fake and poorly developed, which, like, honestly, yeah, it's true, because, Perse- I mean, like, Persephone, it comes alive in this series. It's all about Heroes of Olympus for them. They only just start mm. dating in Last Olympian, and they're separated for six months. So these events are really, like, what binds them together, how we see them interacting, and it's what makes Persebeth perhaps the greatest love story ever told. Thank you very much. (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) Any final thoughts, anyone? I'm just really happy. Like, that was a really good villain entrance. Like, that's so... That's boss bitch energy to say, wow, I'm so happy you're here. I'm so excited to fuck your shit up. (laughs) (laughs) Like, thank you for giving me this opportunity. (laughs) We should all dress up as Arachne for Halloween could be like each like two yes. legs or something <laughs> i love that concept yes the art also i think this might be the only situation where i actually like the original art better than the viria art mm-hmm. i think the original art is super scary and much more true to the description in the book about her like mandible tusks and her like paper thin yeah. teeth and it's really scary so check yeah. it out check out that art the line between human and spider is it's is very terrifyingly drawn in, in the original art. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ola, for coming today, joining us for these delightful eight chapters. Thanks for having Hopefully me. Hopefully we see you back soon when we do our next um, special episode, which will be coming up. And just a reminder, everyone, please follow us on social media at Seaweed Brain Podcast, Instagram, Seaweed Brain Pod on Twitter. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts or another platform where it's possible, leave us a nice review. Or a mean review, but preferably a nice one. All right, see y'all next time. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.